Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The head of NATO insists Ukraine will become a member nation. Zelensky says, when? The lead starts right now. Let me in, the message from the Ukrainian president who showed up at the NATO summit, cheered on in a city square as he pushed to join the international alliance. His criticism about the process as Russian strikes were hitting his cities back home. And will Donald Trump be indicted a third time? Today, a brand new grand jury was selected to decide just that, while a different federal grand jury in D.C. is also hard at work. Plus... Do you believe that white nationalists are racist? Yes, if that's what race is, yes. It's not really a difficult question. White nationalists are racists. That's what the term means. And yet Senator Tommy Tuberville of our Alabama keeps making a spectacle of himself and his struggle with trying to discuss this issue. He just gave yet another answer on the topic. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our world lead and one of the most consequential gatherings for world powers in modern history. In a blow to Russian leader Vladimir Putin amid his bloody war on Ukraine, today the alliance reinvigorated by Turkey's about face to make way for Sweden's membership put out a carefully worded communique announcing, quote, Ukraine's future is in NATO, unquote. Despite that assurance, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky is still demanding a clear timeline on his country's accession to the international group as Russia launches strikes on at least three of the major cities in his home country. CNN's Arlette Sines is at the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, as the White House hails President Biden's role in the Turkey reversal as, as they see it, a legacy-making achievement. President Biden arrived at the NATO summit hoping to project strength through unity, but now facing a major rift. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking to a crowd of thousands in Vilnius. The Ukrainian battle flag. Seeking a clear roadmap for his country to join NATO. I would like this summit to become a total assurance of the decisions that we deserve. NATO will give Ukraine security. Ukraine will make NATO stronger. NATO Secretary General proposing a simplified entry process for Ukraine. But a communique from NATO allies tonight falls short of offering Zelensky any timeline to enter the alliance. We will issue an invitation for Ukraine to join NATO when allies agree and conditions are met. Zelensky put NATO allies on blast in a tweet, stating, It's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set, neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership. Uncertainty is weakness. President Biden came into the summit saying Ukraine was not ready to join NATO as Russia's war rages on and said the country still needs to meet democratic reforms. I can't put a timetable on it. This is about the substance of democratic and security sector reforms and getting those right. And of course, uh, that in many ways 
uh, turns on uh, the particular steps that are taken. The president walking a diplomatic tightrope on Ukraine, while at the same time celebrating Sweden's expected acceptance into NATO, a move Turkey was blocking. Defense, close allies in NATO, and I uh, hope we can make it even stronger. A victory for Biden and his allies, resulting from months-long behind-the-scenes work. We made uh, all the more historic by the agreement you reached yesterday in the addition of Sweden. Only achieved, CNN has learned, after a critical diplomatic effort centered around a pair of old Senate colleagues brokering a tenuous deal on selling F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. In turn, Turkey stood aside and Sweden expected to ascend to the alliance. The White House hoping the NATO expansion will send a message to Russia. Rumors of the death of NATO's unity were greatly exaggerated. Vladimir Putin has been counting on the West to crack, NATO to crack, uh, the transatlantic alliance to crack. He has been disappointed at every turn. President Biden tonight is skipping a leader's dinner here in Vilnius, sending Secretary of State Antony Blinken in his place. Instead, it's the third time the president has either left a dinner early or skipped it entirely at one of these summits. The White House says that it's in part so he can prepare for a major speech tomorrow. And the president also has that face-to-face -face meeting with Zelensky on deck for tomorrow as they're trying to show further support for Ukraine amidst the war against Russia. Jake. All right, Arlette Signs in Vilnius, Lithuania, traveling with President Biden. Thank you so much. We're getting some new insight now into the back-channel diplomacy that got Turkey to finally agree to admit Sweden into NATO. A lot of it had to do with getting members of Congress on board with a plan for the U.S. to sell F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Let's get right to CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department for this part of the story. So, Kylie, tell us more about this, this pressure campaign targeting certain lawmakers. Well, listen, what we're learning, Jake, is that there was an intensive effort by U.S. diplomats over the course of the last few months, uh, really led by the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, Jeff Flake, who went up to Congress multiple times. He went one time with the U.S. ambassador to Greece because there's also an arms sale being com uh, considered for the U.S. to give Greece F-35s while they're also considering a potential sale of F-16s to Turkey, which had been held up by Congress. What they were trying to do, meeting with members of Congress, was figure out how they could get Congress to a yes in terms of supplying these F-16s to Turkey, which Turkey was making pretty clear that it needed in order for them to move forward and give the green light to Sweden to join NATO. Now, we have seen Turkey obviously move forward on the question of NATO and Sweden. But what we're watching to see now is what happens with this F-16s effort. And we know that this has been a major focal point for the Turks. And what we're hearing from U.S. officials right now is what they're watching for tomorrow is a meeting between the prime minister of Greece, who is one of the regional allies that has been at odds with Turkey, and the Turkish uh, president, who are going to essentially come to some sort of agreement, we understand it from U.S. officials, that are going to assuage the concerns of Senator Menendez, who currently has the hold on the F-16s from the U.S. to Turkey. Jake? All right. Fascinating stuff. Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida. He's on the uh, Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, also a colonel in the Army National Guard and a combat-decorated uh, Green Beret. God, that's so much introduction to you. We're almost out of time, Congressman. So yeah, uh, let me so. ask you, does NATO's reluctance to admit Ukraine 
right away. NATO's not doing it right away. Does that give Putin a green light in any way to continue the war, do you think? No, I don't think so, Jake. I think actually it's the, it's the right call. Uh, I would not be in favor of bringing Ukraine into NATO right now for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're actively in a war. So as soon as they're in NATO, that triggers Article 5 and that pulls in not only U.S. troops, but all NATO member troops uh, into the war with Russia with a nuclear power. Uh, but number two, I'm not uh, in favor of expanding NATO any further beyond Finland and Sweden, who, by the way, both contribute more than 2% to their national defense until the rest of NATO gets its act together. I mean, right now we're sitting uh, at nine out of the 32, including the two new members, only nine out of 32, Jake, contribute 2% of their GDP, which they all pledged to do a decade ago. Uh, so, uh, look, at the end of the day, we cannot continue, the United States taxpayer cannot con can continue to subsidize European defense. Uh, they're, they're having their cake and eating it, too. The U.S. is paying for defense. They're paying for their social programs. Uh, and, and, and then finally, you know, every member has to be able to contribute to the collective defense of all others. And obviously, Ukraine right. is not able to do that right now. Uh, they're not able to contribute not to the collective position. defense of others. So I think it's the right call for yeah. that. So you've endorsed President, uh, former President Trump um, uh, in his 2024 bid. Uh, President Trump, he's insisting he's going to end the war in Ukraine within 24 hours if he uh, is elected. I'm not trying to be snarky here. I'm, I'm le legitimately curious. Has he shared this strategy to end it in 24 hours with you? Uh, no, Jake, he hasn't. And, and I don't think I would take uh, President Trump literally uh, on that timeline. Uh, but I think what he's speaking to is there are other ways uh, that we can drive this war uh, to some type of peaceful conclusion. Uh, for example, you know, why aren't we flooding the uh, international market with American oil and gas? It drives down the price of oil. It's cleaner gas than Russian gas. Let's starve Putin of the resources that he has rather than allowing China, keeping the price high, allowing China to purchase uh, Russian oil and gas, and then exhausting our own stockpiles to fight at the other end of it. So I think what President Trump's getting to, and a lot of people are, are saying, what does success look like? A blank check, as long as it takes, is not a strategy. Uh, and another endless war is not something the United States can afford. Uh, you know, let's drive this uh, effort as the leader of NATO, as the leader of the free world, to some type of conclusion. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about um, what's going on in the military right now, uh, because the Pentagon is trying to increase pressure uh, on your fellow Republican, Senator uh, Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. He has a, a single-handedly holding all uh, promotions, all senior military nominations, uh, because he objects to the Pentagon policy uh, of paying for service members who want to go to another state if they want to be able to get an abortion. Um, and obviously, a lot of people in the Pentagon, a lot of people in the national security commu uh, community are saying this is literally putting U.S. Res readiness and national security at risk. Would you mm -hmm. like him to drop the hold on all these promotions? Yeah, but Jake, you're skipping over there that uh, that chairman of the House Armed Services Committee uh, in Congress and many others practically begged the Pentagon not to politicize this issue of abortion, not to dive uh, the Pentagon headlong into it, where they're paying for the travel and paying for the lodging 
of military members to travel wherever they want to go, wherever they think the, the state laws uh, are, are most favorable. I mean, they really should not have uh, politicized this issue. And oh, by the way, it's illegal uh, with the Hyde Act. So that's, uh, that's his issue. I, look, I think that right now, uh, yes, we have an acting commandant of the Marine Corps. He's doing the job, but we need to resolve this issue. And it's a broader issue of uh, the Pentagon basically saying to service members, if you don't like state law, whether it's on abortion, maybe it's on the Second Amendment, uh, maybe it's on uh, some other issue, education policy that you don't think is favorable, then we'll relocate you or we'll pay for you to go uh, somewhere else. And I, that is a Pandora's box that I wish this Pentagon hadn't opened. Yeah, the Hyde Amendment uh, says that you can't use federal funds to pay for abortion. It doesn't say anything about uh, a travel. Um, wait, wait, wait. But wait, I understand wait, wait, your point out. about the, these about are the federal Pandora's. Funds. This is, this is, these are federal funds. They're appropriated dollars to the Pentagon out of the Pentagon's defense budget that they're paying for travel and paying for lodging in unlimited numbers. There's no cap on it. That is in direct violation of the Hyde Amendment. I mean, there's just no question about it. And the Pentagon's essentially shrugging their shoulders at the law. Uh, it, like, I don't think I, that's I, correct about the Hyde Amendment, but I don't think you and I are going to. I don't think you and I are going to resolve that right now. But I, I take your point about the Pandora's box. Uh, Republican Congressman Mike Waltz, uh, thank you so much for your time, and as always, thank you for your service. Good to see all you. Right. Hey, thanks, Jake. With cameras rolling today, a jury was selected in Fulton County, Georgia. What we know about the group to likely consider yet another indictment against Donald Trump. Then, some of the power players behind the PGA partnership with Saudi-backed Live Golf. Why they claimed today they had no choice but to strike the deal with the group that, that they had, involved, had previously described as shady. Plus, the fear in parts of America's northeastern United States as swollen rivers flood more towns. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead today, you're watching a judge in Fulton County, Georgia, swear in 26 members of a grand jury. They will soon be tasked with a monumental decision whether to hand a former president his third indictment in as many months and his uh, it would be a Georgia indictment. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis launched an investigation in early 2021 after Mr. Trump and his allies tried to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. CNN's Nick Valencia is live for us in Atlanta. Nick, explain exactly what this new grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia will do and when we could expect uh, any possible charges or announcement that there won't be any charges. Well, Jake, here in Fulton County, two grand juries were seated today. One of them will be given the historic task of deciding whether or not to bring state charges against the former president and some of the biggest names in his orbit. This grand jury will have, uh, hear evidence gathered by the special purpose grand jury in their many months of work for District Attorney Fonnie Willis in their evidence gathering. They had subpoena power and heard from 75 witnesses, which included White House aides, former Trump advisors, Georgia officials. After they finished hearing uh, the, the witnesses, uh, they took charging documents to the district attorney here, Fonnie Willis, Fonnie Willis will now take those charging recommendations to this grand jury that was seated today, one of them, and try to pursue criminal indictments against the former president and some of those in his orbit. What's really interesting about these grand juries, Jake, is not only over the course of the next two months will they meet twice a week, 
but they're going to be hearing ordinary criminal cases from Fulton County. But eventually, Fannie Willis will take that uh, Trump case to them, and they're going to have to decide whether or not to pursue indictments. As far as timeline, we anticipate a decision on a potential indictment will come as early as August. Jake. Meanwhile, Trump is also facing these federal charges uh, in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. How is he planning to fight those charges? Well, he is fighting them indeed, and that's probably not a surprise to many people, along with his co-defendant, Walt Nada. They're asking for a delay in this until after the presidential election, saying that there's really just no way to seat an impartial jury while a presidential campaign is underway. Jake. All right. Nick Valencia, thank you so much. Uh, Coming up next, what Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama told CNN late this afternoon about white nationalists uh, after many, many, many differing answers that he's had on the subject of white nationalists. Topping our politics lead today, President Biden's nominee to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Air Force General C.Q. Brown, testified today before members of the Senate Armed Services Committee as he seeks confirmation to become the nation's highest-ranking military officer. But Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama is currently holding up the nominations of more than 200 senior military members, non-political positions, including the nominee to head up the Marine Corps, which is now left without a Senate-confirmed leader for the first time in 164 years. All of this leaves in doubt when a confirmation vote for General Brown will actually take place. Current Chairman Chairman General Mark Milley must leave his post at the end of September. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. Uh, Orrin, what do we know about whether Tuberville is planning to hold up this nomination of CQ Brown to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs as well, in addition to all the other uh, flag officers? Jake, from what we've heard from Senator Tommy Tuberville today and over the last couple of days, certainly add General Charles Q. Brown or C.Q. Brown to this long list and growing list of nominations that are on hold because of Tuberville. And that creates a situation in the Joint Chiefs of Staff where you don't have a Senate-confirmed chief. The vice chairman will step in as the acting chairman. C.Q. Brown is in this sort of limbo. He's, he'll, he'll no longer be the Air Force Chief of Staff, and he can't yet be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So you have this problematic position. Tuberville has insisted there is no risk to national security and it will not affect military readiness. That's despite Brown himself saying today it'll affect readiness. General Eric Smith who's nominated to be the Commandant of the Marine Corps, as you just mentioned, has said it'll affect readiness, as has uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that just yesterday. Brown was asked about the effects on the military, and he went on quite a bit at length about the different ways in which this hurts the military. First, it backs up the entire promotion process. It creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty for families who are trying to figure out if and when they will move. And then he talked about the question of retention and how it affects that. We have our more junior officers who now will look up and say, if that's the challenge that we have to deal with in the future, uh, I may not want to, I'm going to balance between my family and serving in a senior position. And we will lose talent uh, uh, because of uh, those, those challenges. Tuberville says the Senate can vote on these one at a time, but Majority Leader Chuck Schumer hasn't wanted to go in that direction. First, it would take months to go through this list of 200-plus senior military officers and counting. And second, he doesn't want to normalize this block that you see from Tuberville, Jake. What are you learning about how the Pentagon is planning to increase pressure on uh, Tuberville? I, I was asking a Republican 
member of the House Armed Services Committee earlier today, uh, earlier on the show, Congressman Mike Waltz, who, who did not seem particularly sympathetic to the Biden administration on this issue. And that's part of the problem here. It's how do you create pressure on Tuberville? There are the normal back channel conversations between legislative affairs staff here and the Senate Armed Services Committee. The idea there, according to defense officials, is to try to put some pressure on Tuberville, but also to try to get Republicans to put pressure on Tuberville. And then there's also a more public campaign. DOD has essentially a list of effects on personnel, from military spouses leaving their jobs and waiting to try to figure out where they can move to, children leaving schools and waiting to to enroll in other schools. So there are human effects, and that is what DOD is trying to put out there to create a public awareness campaign around this, Jake. All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Thanks. Let's talk more about this with CNN senior political analyst Nia Malika Henderson, along with uh, Caitlin Collins, anchor of CNN's brand new 9 p.m. program, The Source, with Caitlin Collins. Uh, Caitlin, we'll start with you. Uh, you made a lot of news last night in your interview with Senator Tuberville. Uh, he told you he's not going to stop the military confirmation holdup because the Senate could take up each of the more than 200 nominations separately. But as Oren just noted, that could take months. And Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman Jack Reed specifically says the process to do that would take 688 hours, 84 eight-hour legislative days. So that's not really a serious counterproposal. Yeah. And this isn't a Senate that we've seen has done a lot of work. I mean, they just had a two week recess. They're about to go on a month long recess in August. So when they do have that time on the floor, they obviously don't plan to use it for something like this. I think what's important here, Jake, is how this is causing a divide even within Tuberville's own party, something that he has pushed back against. But his premise here on the idea of the Pentagon paying for the travel and the paid time off, not the actual service, I should note, is something that a lot of Republicans aren't in favor of. This isn't a policy that you would likely see put in place, obviously, if Donald Trump was in office or any other Republican. But what they disagree with on their fellow senator here is the tactic that he's using, because we've seen senators before try to protest uh, essentially what a nominee or a policy by holding up a nominee. But typically, those are civil nominees. Those are political people. These are military officers who who aren't getting uh, their promotions because of this. And the point that I made to Senator Tuberville last night was it's not hurting Biden directly or Defense Secretary Austin. It's hurting these families because it affects the way they can move to different school districts, whether or not their spouses can accept new jobs, their pay raise. Some of these officers, I should note, Jake, they are starting in an acting position in these new roles. They don't get backdated pay. So they're not going to get paid even though they're yeah. doing a job under a different title right now. Yeah, families that sacrifice for the United States. Uh, Nia, uh, Caitlin also pressed Senator Tuberville about his difficulty condemning white nationalism, which has been a months-long issue for the senator. Today, uh, Senator Tuberville tried to, to clean up his messy interview with Caitlin. Take a, take a listen. I'm totally against racism. And if the Democrats want to say that white nationalists are racist, I'm totally against that, too. But that's not a Democratic definition. The definition of a white nationalist is Well, that's your definition. My definition is is racism bad. Next question. The definition is that the belief that the white race is superior to all other races. totally out of the question. So do you believe that white nationalists are racist? Yes. If that's what a race is, yes. 
Okay, boy, so that didn't clear up anything. And just for those who are out there wondering, white nationalism is racism. It is the belief that whites are superior to other races. That's what it means. That's the definition. That's not a democratic definition. That's the definition. But after that, Senator Tuberville finally told our Manu Raju off camera that white supremacists are racist. Now, Niamalika, this is a 68-year-old white man who's lived almost his entire life in the South do you find it credible that he actually is having difficulty with the definition of this? Or is there something perhaps more nefarious going on? Listen, you know, when I saw this interview last night uh, with Caitlin Collins, it really reminded me of something Donald Trump did when he sort of feigned ignorance around the Proud Boys, feigned ignorance around David Duke. Supposedly, he didn't have any idea uh, who David uh, Duke was or what he stood for. This is when he was running for president. So what I think uh, Tommy Tuberville is up to is sort of trying to mainstream white nationalist ideology, mainstream the term white nationalism. Uh, so in that interview, it, it, it's sort of confusing because on the one hand, he says, listen, uh, racism is bad. Uh, white nationalism, if you want to call it that, uh, that's that's not great. Um, so, so, But I think that's what he's up to. And listen, this is part of a long tradition, I think, particularly among white Southerners of a certain age of sort of downplaying racism uh, in the South, downplaying racism uh, in America, downplaying a racist themselves. And so there he is. At some point, he seems to suggest that white nationalists are just sort of ordinary uh, white Americans who love their country. Uh, so, so listen, again, I don't think it's by accident that he is doing it. I think it's something uh, that really has led to, for instance, Nick Fuentes being a headliner at a college Republican uh, convention. Uh, Nick Fuentes dining with Donald Trump. This kind of mainstreaming of white nationalism ideology is something that I, see, that I think we see increasingly among uh, conservatives, among the alt-right. And I think that's what he's up to. Even as he walks it back, it's almost too late because he's been at this kind of mainstreaming uh, and watering down this term for many, many months. Well, and then, uh, Caitlin, uh, take a listen to what Senator Tuberville said last October at a rally about Democrats. Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that. So just to be pretty clear here, Senator Tuberville, in addition to falsely saying that Democrats want crime, that's a quote, they want crime, they want reparations, that is the discussion about whether descendants of of slaves should be paid reparations. They want reparations because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. That is, Caitlin, the most abjectly racist statement I have heard from a U.S. senator in my life. And can I say something about this? You know, I was actually looking into Tuberville's past comments when we were getting prepared to preparing to interview him last night. And obviously, he was before he was a U.S. senator. He was a football coach. He was at Ole Miss in the '90s. And there was a story about how he played a pretty significant role, according to people who were there at the time, in getting the student body when they came to games to stop waving around the Confederate flag as they were doing in the 90s. He was talking about how it hurt recruiting efforts, how black families were coming on recruiting visits to the school, and that was affecting it, he said. And he kind of made a comment last night also to me saying, 
as he was saying, you know, I don't believe in racism. I don't like racism while also not, you know, denouncing white nationalists and saying that they don't belong in the U.S. military. He made a comment saying that uh, he had spent more time around minorities than almost anyone else on Capitol Hill, referencing his days as a football coach. Obviously, there are many people and lawmakers on Capitol Hill who would take issue with that, Jake, for obvious reasons. Uh, I just think it's notable to go from a moment like that in the 90s where he's going and asking the student section of Ole Miss to do this to then defending those comments. And you could see how he was being pressed by Rachel Scott earlier today and how he kind of snapped at her when he was elaborating and she was pressing him to just state clearly his views on this. Right. But of course, not wanting the Confederate flag flown because it hurts recruiting efforts to your football team is not the same thing as not wanting the Confederate flag flown because it is a flag representing representing treason, traitors and racism. Yeah, it's just an interesting evolution of those comments and where he is now. And of course, what he said last fall as well. Caitlin Niamalika, thanks so much. And you should always join Caitlin tonight, 9 p.m. on The Source. Her guest this evening, former vice president, current Republican presidential candidate, Mike Pence. That is tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Next here on The Lead, top PGA execs on Capitol Hill today giving their reasoning for partnering with Saudi-backed Live Golf. A vocal critic of the deal was there to hear it. We're going to talk to her about what she heard. That's next. In our sports lead, top PGA Tour officials were hauled to Capitol Hill today to answer questions about its so-called partnership with the Saudi-backed Live Golf. Officials told Senate lawmakers they had no choice but to partner with Live Golf and the Saudi government. They say to prevent a takeover. Listen. Our players and our charities win. I don't know that anyone is losing. I think it benefits all of our There's no individuals that will be losing because of this financially? No, no, sir, because we're healing a fracture, a fracture in professional golf. This is, of course, more than about saving golf. It's about a lot of money. This deal involves the Saudi government. Despite the PGA Tour's past criticism about the Saudi regime's record on human rights abuses and the U.S. intelligence saying it was clearly Saudi Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman who gave the order to assassinate Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the regime's record also, of course, includes allegations of complicity in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Let's bring in Terry Strada. She's the national chair for 9-11 Families United and lost her husband, Tom, in the 9-11 attack. Terry, good to see you. As always, so you and your organization, you were there for today's Senate hearing. Yes. Uh, what was your response? What would you make of it? It was bizarre. It was really hard to sit there and watch Jimmy Dunn get trotted in to spew the Saudi talking points about how this is all for the good of the game of golf is good for, you know, world peace is what he fell short of saying. It was remarkable that he also said that some men did something on that day. That's how he described 9-11. And he fails to understand the role that the kingdom played in facilitating the attacks against this country. He said there's Saudi nationals over in Saudi Arabia that we don't want them to think Americans hate them. Well, Mr. Dunn, we don't hate Saudi Arabian nationals. What we are trying to do is hold the kingdom, the Saudi government, the same House of Saud that was in power in 2001 is still in power today, and we need to hold them accountable for September 11th. And this deal that they made in the darkness of the night, um, they gave us no details today. They couldn't tell us anything about what's coming next. 
Um, it was just very bizarre. Yeah, it's not about the Saudi people, of course. The Saudi people are also uh, victims uh, of the Saudi regime and their human rights abuses and oppression. Um, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin today uh, defended the PGA Tour's position of negotiating this deal with the Saudis. Uh, Let's play this. Here's his reasoning. But it would be grossly unfair to expect the PGA Tour to bear the full burden of holding Saudi Arabia accountable. After all, Anyone who drives a car or uses oil-based products has helped fill the coffers of the Saudi Public Investment Fund. How do you respond to that? What do you what do you make of that argument? Yeah, I was disappointed in that being an argument made against holding the kingdom accountable for September 11th. Yes, we do business with them on that level with the oil. We all know that. But that doesn't excuse what they did to us on September 11th. And we're not asking the PGAT to hold them accountable. We're asking them to stop allowing them to sports wash away the sins that they committed on this country and that they killed nearly 3,000 Americans on American soil and that the PGAT is now giving them a much larger platform to wash away their sins. And I think they had the nerve to say today that the governor of PIF, he just wants a membership at Augusta. I mean, that's what they're trading away. Our opportunity at accountability is for a membership to Augusta. They had a lot of nerve today, a lot of things that they said on the Hill. Listen to this comment from a board member of the PGA Tour's governing body who who responded to allegations of uh, Saudi's uh, complicity in the 9-11 attacks. Take a listen. If any person had the remotest connection to an attack on our country and the murder of my friends, I am the last guy that would be sitting at a table with them. What did you make of that? Again, he's missing the point that possibly the governor of PIF had nothing to do with 9-11. I don't know if that's true or not, but we're talking about the government of Saudi Arabia, and that is who they are in bed with now. That is who they are bringing into this country and allowing them to take over Gulf. They could take a stand against it. They don't have to cave to the kingdom, but they are so wrong in thinking that if this governor had nothing to do with it, who I'm dealing with had nothing to do with it. No, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia government officials were definitely involved in attacking us on 9-11. They set up the support network that was needed for the 19 hijackers to come here and carry out the attacks. If he doesn't know Mm -hmm. that, he needs to be educated. Terry Stroud, as always, may your husband's memory be a blessing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up next, CNN is on the scene as an extreme flooding event is unfolding right now in the northeastern United States. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters lead, extreme weather is slamming communities across the United States. Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas are suffering from sweltering temperatures. A series of strong storms have left other states, including Oklahoma and Vermont and upstate New York, reeling from flooding. Scientists often blame climate change for more of these kinds of severe storms. CNN's Miguel Marquez is in Vermont, where people say they've never seen anything like this. Record rainfall, massive amounts of water inundating nearly the entire state of Vermont. We are not out of the woods. This is nowhere near over. Reservoirs meant to control flooding overflowing. North of the state's capital, the Wrightsville Dam, just inches from overflow. It could dump even more water into the already swollen 
Winsuki River. Receding slowly in some places, but other parts of the state still on alert. Downtown Montpelier, State Street, a fast-moving river, completely impassable, the water lapping at the State House lawn. Water rescues continuing over a hundred so far. Jesus Garcia and his family were staying in an Airbnb. His family, their hosts, and the family dog Harley evacuated. You wanted to get out of there because you you just weren't sure what was going to happen? Uh, man, we just saw how strong the current was. I mean, look at it. It's pretty strong. So, I mean, if it can knock a few branches off, imagine what it can do to a, you know, to a house. So we're just, you know, playing it safe. Right. You weren't sure if it was going to keep rising. Yeah, we didn't know. Yeah, we didn't know. Like I said, we're not we're not from here, so we don't know what the weather's like. And yeah, it's been I've never seen nothing like this. <laughs> it's been pretty crazy. Well, the water was rising quickly uh, after being pretty tame most of the morning, and um, all of a sudden it was in the house. Rainfall for weeks on end, saturating the state. The result: the water only had one place to go, overland washing away roads, causing massive property damage, and putting people like Don Hancock out of their homes. Uh, sir, you are wet from head to toe without any shoes on. I mean, down when I come across. <laughs> so you lost your shoes getting across here? Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't find a rope, so I took two heavy-duty extension cords, tied them to there, and tied them to the back of the truck. Extreme weather, the new American and global normal. Oklahoma City drenched with life-threatening rainfall. And flooding only the start, extreme heat baking other parts of the country. Yesterday, temperature alerts affecting more than 40 million people from California to Florida. So I am on Bailey Street in Montpelier, and uh, it was a little difficult to get here. The water is still up to about my waist here. I have a live camera here. I'm going to show you what the, the cleanup's going to look like. It's going to be a lot of mud. This stuff is incredibly thick, very, very silty mud, six, maybe 12 inches in some places, and then lots of debris. That's the Winsuki River there, and just massive amounts of debris, everything from lots and lots of trees to refrigerators and lots of building materials. Jake, it's going to be a long time before they clean this one up. Back to you. Oh, it's just devastation everywhere you look. Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. Uh, just in a new development in one of the monumental cases, monumental, monumental murder cases of the 20th century, after five decades in prison, one of the loyal followers of Charles Manson, the so-called Creepy Crawlies, is finally free. Plus, we'll tell you about the hazing scandal that led Northwestern University to fire its longtime head football coach. I'm going to talk to a former member of the team and a student reporter who helped break the story. Welcome to the Lean Up Jake Tapper. This hour, Northwestern University's head football coach fired after 17 seasons over hazing allegations. We're going to talk to a former player as well as one of the student reporters who broke the story detailing the alleged hazing rituals that allegedly involved sexual coercion. Plus, one state has spent $20 billion of your tax dollars to try to fix a growing problem, but instead the problem has gotten worse. How does that even happen? And leading this hour, there is a brand new grand jury being impaneled that could be tasked with whether to indict Donald Trump. 26 men and women in Fulton County, Georgia, will now decide if the former president and his allies will be charged with trying to overturn the 2020 election and related crimes. This is in addition, of course, 
to the federal charges for his handling of classified documents. Those charges have already been leveled. The pending New York trial in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. And then, of course, there's this potentially other special counsel indictment connected to January 6th. So where does Georgia fit in with all of that? Among other allegations, there's the now infamous Trump phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. CNN's Sarah Murray has been following this story since the very beginning. And Sarah, the jurors in Fulton County, Georgia, the Atlanta area, are sworn in. So what, what happens next? Well, for the next couple of weeks, they're going to operate like a normal grand jury would in Fulton County, which means they're probably going to hear cases that are murders, that are carjackings, that are robberies, that kind of thing. And then at a certain point, the DA's team is probably going to come to them in a couple of weeks, walk into one of those grand juries and say, "Okay, today you're going to hear a different kind of case. And then we'll likely present their evidence against Donald Trump or any of the allies that they want to try to bring charges against before this grand jury. Remember, a special grand jury spent months and months collecting evidence in this case, interviewing witnesses, getting documents, but didn't have the ability to indict. Now we are at a point where these grand juries that have been impaneled can uh, bring indictments if that is what Fonnie Willis decides to do, Jake. And Sarah, who, who could be in legal jeopardy in this investigation? Presumably, maybe Donald Trump. Anyone else? Well, yeah, Donald Trump is, is at the center of this investigation. So, of course, he could face legal jeopardy. We know there are a couple of people who have been told that they're targets in this investigation. Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump's former attorney, is one of those. David Schaefer, the head of the Republican Party in Georgia, who served as a Republican fake elector and has not taken an immunity deal, to our knowledge at this point, is another potential target. But we know they've been scrutinizing a number of people who are around Donald Trump in this post-election time, including former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Sidney Powell, who was working on these election challenges, and she's looking at conspiracy charges. So there could potentially be a long list, Jake. Sarah Murray, thanks so much for that update. Let's turn now to a different Trump investigation. There are many of them, of course. The unprecedented federal charges against the former president and his top aide, Walt Nada, for allegedly unprecedented actions. Attorneys for the two men seem to be asking for a major delay in the classified documents federal case, suggesting in that legal file, in a illegal filing that it might need the prosecution to wait until after the 2024 election. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed joins us now live to discuss this. Paula, when will the judge make a decision about whether or not this will be delayed until after the election in 2024 or when there will actually be a date? Well, Jake, it's unclear exactly when we'll get that answer, but we know this is a key tension right now between prosecutors and the Trump team. Jack Smith says, look, I want a speedy trial. He suggested that this should go to trial in December, which given the complexity of this case, that would be speedy indeed. But the Trump team has said, look, we want to raise a lot of different legal questions. You should expect a lot of litigation around this case. They want to raise questions, including whether the special counsel even has the authority to bring these charges, questions about whether these documents were actually classified. Now, Jake, it's unlikely they're actually going to succeed on the merits of any of those questions. But those questions even being raised and litigated will have the effect of delaying this. And each delay gets this closer and closer to the presidential election, which raises a whole new set of constitutional questions. It is an unprecedented issue, Jake. But at this point, they're making the legal argument that, look, it's his right 
to raise a lot of these questions, and they also have a significant amount of discovery evidence to go through. At this point, they already have nine months of surveillance footage and hundreds of thousands of documents. And they say, you know, December, it's not likely that they're going to be able to do it by then. And at this point, they believe it's premature to even be able to name a date when they might be able to be ready to bring this to trial. So this is going to be a constant tension, right? The desire to move this along quickly versus the Trump team desire to at least push this past the election. And the referee here is Trump-appointed Judge Eileen Cannon, and the parties will go before her for the first time next Tuesday in a hearing that was delayed just a few days. Okay, so Judge Cannon, that's the classified documents case. Then we talked about the federal, not the federal, the Fulton County grand jury, and that's the Georgia case. And I, I apologize to all our viewers out there who might be confused. There are a lot of criminal charges against Donald Trump. Let's tackle this, this third uh, case, the, the special counsel's investigation into Trump and his allies' ever, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, not just in Georgia, but nationally. Now, two of the prosecutors in that case were seen at the courthouse today. Does that mean anything? Well, it caused a lot of excitement sort of on Twitter. The people who follow this case very closely, what does it mean? But Jake, instead of just trying to read tea leaves, we're going to rely on our actual reporting. We know in recent weeks there has been sort of an urgency from prosecutors who have reached down to certain witnesses wanting to move things along quickly. But we also know from our reporting that they're still scheduling interviews with witnesses. So while all signs and all of our reporting suggest that they are nearing the end of this investigation, we also have reporting that suggests... They're not quite done yet. So people shouldn't read too much into the fact that one of the prosecutors who works, two of the prosecutors who work on this case, who go before the grand jury, were spotted at the courthouse. Our reporting suggests at this point they still have a little work to do before they bring charges. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Let's bring in Tom Dupree. He's the former principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. Uh, Tom, let's start with this argument being made by Trump and not his defense team that they don't think it would be possible for there to be a fair jury to be convened during a presidential campaign where Donald Trump is running. The question here is not if that's philosophically accurate. It's is it a solid legal argument that the judge might find convincing? Is it? In my judgment, Jake, no, it's not. I don't think the judge would throw this case out or postpone this case on that basis. Uh, for one thing, look, choosing a jury is going to be a challenge. No getting around it. You've got to find jurors who at least claim that they can be impartial, who don't know all the ins and outs of these cases and who haven't been following the case. But at the same time, I wouldn't go so far as to say it is impossible to select a jury during the campaign season or before the election. And even if you were to postpone this trial until after the election, I'm not sure I see how the political concerns would dissipate. People who would have difficulty adjudicating this case before the election, I think, would still have the same problem after the election. So Judge Cannon, the Trump appointed judge who's, who's hearing this case, she set the initial date for the trial to begin in mid-August, that was large, widely seen as just a placeholder. Do you think she'd actually be willing to postpone this case until after the election next year? I do think she'd be willing to do that. And look, uh, it's clear the way that things are shaping up right now. The Trump team is going to do everything they can to push this after the election. Jack Smith is doing everything he can to do it early. My sense is that Cannon is probably going to be inclined to listen to the Trump team's arguments and take them seriously when they say they have serious, substantive legal arguments. They have a right to present. They may or may not be meritorious, but they would say, look, any criminal defendant is entitled to raise these. And we have a right to our day in court to careful consideration of these motions. 
and to give us ample and adequate time to prepare these arguments. I'm not saying it's a certainty that she's going to postpone it, but it wouldn't surprise me if she is receptive to their arguments that this trial needs to be further bumped back. If, I mean, it just to state the obvious, if she agrees to push the, the trial that far after the election 2024, and then if Donald Trump wins the presidential election, I realize that's two big ifs, but if those two things happen, the case goes away, right? Absolutely. I mean, I cannot imagine on this, you know, God's green earth, the Justice Department under a Trump administration continuing this prosecution. If Trump wins the election, then I think this case dissolves. Uh, so if there hasn't been a trial by the election, Trump wins, the case gets dismissed on January 20th. Tom Dupree, thanks so much for your expertise as always. Just into CNN, former Charles Manson follower and convicted murderer Leslie Van Houten is now a free woman. Van Houten was released from prison earlier today. She served more than 50 years for her role in the killings of a supermarket executive and his wife. Van Houten was 19 when she met Charles Manson and joined the murderous cult known as the Manson Family. California's parole board first recommended her release in 2016, but two separate California governors blocked her release multiple times. Please let us in now. That was the plea from Ukraine's president to NATO. But did the other world leaders open the door to Zelensky? Coming up. Plus, when Putin first attacked Ukraine, hundreds of companies pledged to stop doing business in Russia, but not all of them left. Which one stayed and how is business? Stay with us. And back with our world lead, extraordinary developments from world leaders at the NATO summit in Lithuania after Turkey finally made way for Sweden's membership. Ukraine's president Zelensky made a splash, slamming the powerful military alliance's lack of clear time frame for Ukraine's accession into NATO as a way to pressure them. While back in Zelensky's country, Ukraine, Russia was attempting to bomb the capital, Kyiv, shelling the southern city of Kherson and launching drones at the port city of Odessa, igniting one of the buildings where critical grain is being stored, according to the Ukrainian government. CNN's Nick Robertson is watching all of this from London for us, and CNN's Alex Marquardt is inside Ukraine's capital of Kyiv. Um, Alex, let me start with you. Put today's attack on Odessa into perspective. Is this Putin's way of making waves while Zelensky's at the NATO summit? Jake, uh, it's very hard to say. It is certainly possible. There have been so many waves of missile <coughs> attacks and drone strikes or, or attempted drone attacks. What is clear, though, Jake, is that Russia was aiming these drones at two very critical areas, the Kyiv region, of course, where we are, and the critical port city of Odessa. Now, there were around 30 of these Russian drones that were sent, we believe, from southern Russia. They're actually, most of them, these Iranian-made Shahed Kamikaze drones uh, that were targeting Kyiv and Odessa. Most of them were shot down uh, by Ukrainian air defenses. At least two of them got through in Odessa. Thankfully, no one was killed, but debris from the drones that were shot down did set two of the grain terminals uh, on fire. Those fires were put out. But Jake, we are closely watching Odessa. It is a very sensitive area. That is where Ukraine ships all of its grain out of to the world. It ships it under an agreement with Russia. Russia allows it to be exported through the Black Sea under that agreement. But that agreement is ending in just a couple of days time. And there are indications uh, that Russia may not want to renew it. But as far as these attempted strikes go, Jake, there's so often no rhyme or reason to what Russia is doing beyond wanting to sow terror in Ukraine. 
Nick, uh, NATO put out an official announcement, it's called a communique, that said in part, quote, Ukraine's future is in NATO, but NATO also knocked down Ukraine's membership process uh, as happening imminently, yet they also reduced it from two steps to just one. However, none of this seems to fully please Zelensky. Yeah, Zelensky seems to want the war on the door, to, uh, the door on the water closed, and the door to NATO to open immediately, and that's just not the way it's going to be. Uh, look, he's got form on handling his differences with NATO this way, full of bluster coming in hard, right? Uh, you know, whether it was on tanks, whether it was on fighter aircraft or surface to air missile de defense systems, etc. He was always way ahead of where NATO was, and certainly he is right now. He seems, number one, to be trying to make the point, look, uh, Putin went into this war saying, I'm going to stop Ukraine joining NATO. So he's saying this just incentivizes Putin to keep the war going at some level, because if Ukraine can't join because there's a war, therefore keep the war going and, and Ukraine will never, become, never get into NATO. There's that. And there's this other issue that, that, that Zelensky seemed to outline where he seems to be genuinely concerned that somehow that when there comes to this final negotiation with Russia, and let's just say it's not going, the war's not going as well as he wants it to, and he's being pressured now by his NATO partners to say, look, make a deal with Russia, end the war. His concern that there'll be some part of the negotiations at the end of the war, ahead of perhaps where he and Ukrainians want it, which says, look, you can come into NATO on this path, but you've got to pause and stop the war here and, and make peace. So he seems to be really concerned about that. Or... There's another administration, let's say in Washington or somewhere else, at NATO that drags its heels on Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. So kind of, he wants to lock it in now. So there's no ambiguity and uncertainty when it gets to that moment. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems possible that if their next president is Trump or DeSantis, uh, it, they'll view this whole situation quite differently. Uh, Alex, um, we're also hearing about this high-profile Russian military leader who was killed in a Russian-occupied area of Ukraine. Um, is Ukraine claiming responsibility uh, for his death? What do we know about that? Not the Ukrainian government per se, Jake, not the senior most levels uh, of the Ukrainian government, but there are some Ukrainian officials who are making this claim. We saw missile strikes on the Russian-occupied city of Berdyansk today. Uh, that is on the Sea of Azov. That is uh, on the southern front. We saw uh, these missiles hitting well beyond uh, enemy lines, both in the city uh, and nearby. And there is a Russian military headquarters uh, where a Russian general is reported to have been killed. CNN has not independently confirmed this, but this has also been picked up by widely read Russian telegram channels. Um, and this would be the most senior Russian general killed so far in the Ukrainian campaign. His name is uh, Lieutenant General Oleg Tsokov. Uh, he is the deputy commander of the southern uh, military district in Russia. There are four different military districts. So uh, he would also deprive Russian forces uh, of one of their most seasoned commanders and would be the latest in a long line of Russian commanders, Russian generals, who have been killed at the front. Jake? All right, Alex Mark Ward and Keeve, Nick Robertson in London. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Give a dollar and get 20 bucks in return. That's what one Republican presidential candidate is promising donors. But is that legal?
In our 2024 lead, the first national poll that could be used to qualify for the inaugural Republican presidential debate next month has come out. Eight candidates in this poll meet the required 1% threshold in this new poll from Morning Consort. Those eight candidates, Trump, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, Pence, Christie, Haley, Scott, and Hutchinson. Now, all eight will need to hit that 1% or more level again in two additional polls to qualify for the Milwaukee debate in August. Frontrunner Donald Trump, of course, continues to, to dominate the field. In this poll, he has 56% among Republicans, leading Ron DeSantis by nearly 40 points. DeSantis with 17%. Let's discuss all of this with Ashley Allison, former National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris campaign, along with Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush. Thanks to both of you uh, for being here. Appreciate it, Scott. Trump clearly remains in commanding position right now. He had previously suggested that he might skip the first debate. If he continues to lead this field by margins this big, do you expect he's going to follow through with that threat? Well, I wouldn't uh, go to the debate if I were him. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do anything. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't have to go out and uh, do the normal, you know, uh, hit the campaign trail kind of stuff that everybody else is scraping and clawing at. Uh, so, no, I wouldn't go if I were him. Now, he may not be able to resist a television show, uh, uh, but he might just be content to sit it out and then let the other campaigns uh, bang on Ron DeSantis, which is obviously <laughs> what they would do if Trump weren't there. So smart play would be to sit it out, uh, but we'll see if he can resist the attention. Ashley, um, in addition to the polling requirement uh, to, to meet the threshold to be in the debate, candidates have to reach 40,000 donors to make the RNC debate stage. Donations can be as small as $1. Now, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who is running for president, if people out there don't know, he has an estimated net worth of more than a billion dollars. He is offering to send $20 gift certificates to any donor who sends his campaign money, including if they send as little as $1. So you can send him a dollar and get a $20 gift certificate. What do you make of that? I don't like it. I don't think it is what elections should be about. I mean, there's only a handful of people in this country that could even afford to do that. What he should be presenting are policies that make people want him to be in the in the running for being pe uh, president or even the nominee. He's not in that top eight. He doesn't have name recognition. Spend that money on running ads, talking to voters. You don't have to you shouldn't have to pay people to donate. He's not even paying people for votes. He's paying people just to donate. And he doesn't even really need the money because he has his own money in and of itself. He's just doing it to qualify. So it's kind of sad to me. It's a signal that he doesn't have the momentum he needs. And so maybe that should be a signal to drop out the race. And this isn't his year. Scott, the Bergen, uh, the Bergen campaign is trying to spin this move as altruism rather than political opportunism. He is very wealthy. They're saying they want to help people hurting from, quote, Bidenflation. Uh, you buy that? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, let, let me have my old man yells at cloud moment. I, I hate all of this. I hate this. <laughs> I hate the Ramaswamy commission. I hate the, the text messages I get that say 100x match to your donation. I, th I think political fundraising, what's happened to it, these rules that have been set up, it has made a mockery of the entire thing. And, it's, and it forces these campaigns to do. So you get stupid rules and you get stupid outcomes, which is what this is. I hate all of it. I think it debases them. And uh, it's not it's just it's not great. And uh, and I, I don't like that he has. To, I know why he's doing it, because he wants to debate. and He thinks he, if, you know, to get on that stage, it's his best chance to make a move. Uh, but I mean, come on. <laughs> just terrible.
Awful. I mean, 40,000 40, donations is, is not in the world of donations really that many. Um, Ashley uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president, has come up with a unique way to raise money for his presidential campaign. In a, in a tweet, he wrote, quote, Today we're launching the Vivek Kitchen Cabinet. This is what Scott was just alluding to. Starting today, anyone can fundraise for the Vivek 2024 campaign and make a 10% commission. If someone else is getting rich on this, it might as well be you. Unquote. What do you think of that? Well, he's basically saying pay for access. I'm not even the candidate, but if you want to have access to me, again, help me raise money and I'll give you a little access. I think it's very similar to the governor's attempt. 40,000 donors is not a lot of people. When you think about how many people we will need to have, even vote for you to become the nominee, let alone the president of the United States, if you cannot muster that, you do not need to be in the race. That is why we have elections, because you need to convince people to raise money. So I think this ploy from uh, Ramaswamy is not worried about other people getting rich. That's not why he's doing it. It's not, to the governor's point, an altruistic uh, incentive. It's it's selfish, and it's an attempt to gain more attention and maybe raise in the polls, but it's not, he's not doing it for the people. I can guarantee that. Scott, the Family Leadership Summit is going to host a forum in Iowa for presidential candidates uh, this Friday. Uh, this will be a chance for candidates to speak to the, a key voting block for Republicans in Iowa, evangelical conservative voters. DeSantis, Haley, Pence are all going to be there. Trump is skipping it. Trump is skipping it. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you think that's a, that's a bad idea? I mean, look, I, I think that he doesn't have to do the same things that everybody else has to do. He is what he is. He couldn't say anything on that stage that would make his fans love him any more or his detractors hate him any more than they do. And, and right now he's got, you know, according to that poll you put up, 56 percent of the party. These other candidates are scrapping for less than half. And so I, I just I think that he is content to let these people fight out for the table scraps here, which won't be enough, of course, to take him out of the nomination. And uh, and also, he's an incumbent president. I mean, he had four years. He's got a record that he can point to to evangelical voters and say, I gave you the Supreme Court justices. I did the other judges. I did these policies. And so he's not really up there presenting any plans. You know, he is who he is. And we all know everything there is to know about him. So I don't blame him for skipping this stuff, honestly. He's in a different universe than the rest of these candidates. Scott and Ashley, thanks to both of you. Good to see both of you. The head football coach at Northwestern University is fired after an investigation into hazing in the football program. Now, the coach says he was not aware of it. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a former Northwestern football player and one of the student journalists who helped break the story in the school newspaper. Stay with us. In our sports lead, after 17 seasons, Northwestern University's head football coach, Pat Fitzgerald, has been fired after allegations of hazing within the football program. The school learned about the alleged hazing at the end of 2022, and the university launched an independent investigation, which concluded that hazing had indeed happened, but there was not enough evidence to prove that the coaching staff was aware of any of it. Then, Northwestern student newspaper published a report on Saturday detailing players' accounts of the hazing and claims that Coach Fitzgerald may well have been aware Last night, Fitzgerald released a statement emphasizing that he did not know about the hazing, he says. 
And joining us now is Nicole Marcus. She's one of the student reporters at the Daily Northwestern who helped break this story. Also with us, Ramon Diaz Jr. He's an offensive lineman on the team. He was from 2005 to 2008 and is the first former player to speak publicly about the alleged abuse he experienced. Um, thanks so much to both of you for joining us. Nicole, tell us more about how this story came to light uh, and, and why it was important for you and your colleagues to publish it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I think, you know, after the sanctions were announced Friday morning, it was really important for us to kind of look into what those sanctions were um, revolving around, you know, kind of figure out what the behind the scenes were in that process. Um, and we received a report from the original whistleblower um, who reached out to university officials in November. Um, and so I hopped on a call with him, uh, got his account of everything and kind of, um, that's where everything started. We we looked into um, making sure we corroborated his identity so that we weren't publishing anything that was incorrect and then um, worked from there to gather other sources, talk to the university, and kind of um, bring the story to light because I think a lot of people were pretty confused about the sanctions, not knowing what, what had actually happened within the football team um, and kind of wanted to get to the bottom of that. So that was our motivation behind publishing the story. And Ramon, you described some incredibly horrific abuses that, that you say have, have caused you PTSD. You say you were forced to shave the word Cinco de Mayo into your hair at one point. You played for the school in the 2000s. Why did you now decide to speak publicly about the allegations? Uh, thanks, Jake. Yeah, I, <clears throat> that's a great question. I don't, uh, I know I'm very well connected with some of the teammates who uh, specifically, a couple of teammates experienced similar, if not more egregious um, treatment than I did. Um, and one thing that we we all agreed on, and this is part of the, the systemic issues that I have have shared with other reporters, um, the, the environment that was created on campus within the athletic department among really everyone, I mean, the team atmosphere, is one that we felt, and even now we felt to this point, like we couldn't share um I never felt uh, the, the 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 goal that if I were to share what would happen, and I didn't feel confident that anyone would believe us. Um, I was quite relieved on Friday to, to when the news broke. I received a text from um, a very close black teammate of mine who I played with, and I took what a huge sigh of relief. I I. Um, got very teary-eyed for a little while just because uh, my immediate gut reaction was um, it's finally happening. And I was, uh, I, I felt like I needed to support the two whistleblowers initially. And especially as some of the responses have come really unfortunate. So, Well, I'm glad that the feedback you're getting is largely positive. As you know, Ramon, the football team is saying that the allegations are quote, exaggerated and twisted into lies, unquote, um, and they continue to claim that Coach Fitzgerald was, was unaware and not involved in the alleged incidents. Coach Fitzgerald himself uh, released a statement saying that the independent investigator, quote, reaffirmed what I have always maintained, that I had no knowledge whatsoever of any form of hazing within the Northwestern football program. Therefore, I was surprised when I learned that the president of, of Northwestern unilaterally revoked our agreement without any prior notification and subsequently terminated my employment, unquote. Um, what do you believe in terms of what the former coach is now claiming in terms of his awareness? Yeah, so this question has been posed to me by several different reporters, and I think it's an important one. 
Um, so in hindsight, I, I have a lot more language to this, and I think that's one of the reasons I was willing to speak up as well. Uh, I'm a clinical therapist now, and I'm working on a doctorate in neuropsychology. And so I have quite a bit of language around why people react the way they do in terms of when there are some pretty stressful situations. And when you have a narrative that's in response to a dissenting opinion, and it's very black and white, that nothing happened. Um, and the letter was very unfortunate, and I felt even more compelled as the letter came out from the, the alleged entire football team. When I felt like I, that was speaking to me on my on my part, I felt like I needed to speak up as well. Because when you say exaggerated, I can't speak why they would write that, whoever wrote it, um, the alleged writers. But when you even say exaggerated in that context, you're assuming that the events did take place in some point, some time. Um, so what they, whoever wrote it, I don't know if they caught themselves when they did state that premise in the argument. Um, so I, I want to make sure the viewers understand that they somehow implicitly acknowledge that something did occur. The second point um, is, you know, the question about Pat and whether he knew or not. I'm not going to speculate. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what was going through his mind. I do know that two coaches who did most of the, um, who spoke to me the way they did and, and um, create an environment for me that left me ashamed, embarrassed, left me in a place where I was had to figure out how to re, um, reevaluate who I was leaving Northwestern, um, left me in such despair. Uh, those two were part of his coaching staff. So again, I'm not going to speculate, mm -hmm. but I do know that it went on and no one acknowledged the issues with the shaving of the head or the racial slurs or the treatment for my black teammate and it was all egregious and nobody stepped in to help at any point. Nicole, have you or any other student reporters from the Daily heard from any additional former or current players with similar stories? Yeah, we've been talking to former and current players throughout the past couple of days who have come forward with their stories. Um, obviously, you know, their perspectives on what happened are varied. And I think it's really important for um, the entire team, all of us who are talking to these players, to kind of get their perspectives and making sure that we're um, relaying all the different um, stories of what happened in any way we can. Do you believe, based on your reporting, that the coach was aware of the hazing or at the very least created a situation where there was no accountability for, for uh, him to find out about it, no way for anybody to bring it to his attention? Yeah, it's hard to say because I wasn't in the room. You know, I wasn't there when any of these things were happening. So I don't want to comment one way or another what I believe. What I will say is that the people who we've talked to believe that Coach Fitzgerald knew what was happening. And so um, that's what we reported, that that's that was their belief. And, um, you know, it was several people who relayed that to us, not just one or two. Um, so, you know, again, wasn't in the room, so I can't speak to, you know, what I personally believe, but we just want to make sure that we're giving the players the platform to express their beliefs. The appropriate response from a journalist. Uh, congratulations on the big scoop. Uh, and uh, Ramon, uh, I'm so sorry you went through uh, everything you went through. Thanks to both of you for telling uh, us your stories. And a reminder for viewers uh, right now, if you or someone you care about needs any help, please call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's 988. In our money lead, days after Russia invaded Ukraine, more than a thousand companies pledged to stop doing business in Russia. Did they follow through? CNN's Tom Foreman takes a look at some companies that appear to be 
breaking that pledge and why pulling business out of Russia might be more difficult than it seems. When Russia marched into Ukraine, hundreds of companies from other nations announced plans to march out of Moscow, hitting Vladimir Putin's government in the pocketbook and hobbling his war effort. But one year, four and a half months after the invasion, some others are still doing brisk business in Russia, according to Yale professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. These are companies that said they were leaving and then reneged, saying, oh, it's too much trouble. It's wartime profiteering. And it is actually uh, aiding, sadly, uh, uh, helping to fuel Putin's war machine. His research finds, although many companies followed through on their pledges, taking millions of dollars out of Russia, some big players did not. Among them, Heineken. Sonnenfeld's researchers say the Dutch company has seven facilities in Russia, 1,800 employees, and is still launching new brands there. Heineken calls the war a terrible human tragedy and says the company remains committed to leaving, but so far has not secured Russian regulatory approval to sell its assets. Also on the list, Mondelez, the company that makes Oreos, among other things. With 3,000 employees and products still moving in Russian markets, the company is being boycotted by some Europeans, even as it said in a statement last month, it is scaling back in Russia. And there are more. Unilever has called the war brutal and senseless. Philip Morris has said the situation is complex. Nestle last year pledged to sell only essential items. But Yale researchers say non-essential items are still being sold. And all of those companies continue doing business with the Russians. Many suggest divesting themselves from Russia is more costly and complicated than outsiders might imagine. And they don't want to hurt their Russian employees. Sonnenfeld's response? The whole point of the sanctions and the business exits is to put pressure on the average Russian so that the humanitarian thing is to motivate them to act. To be fair, some of these companies on their websites make the point that they really do care about the Ukrainian cause. They want to send money to it. It's just a very, very complicated thing they're trying to deal with. But Sonnenfeld and others say, look, you got a lot of good press when this first happened by saying you would stand against Russia. You need to fulfill that pledge now, even if it does cost you some money. Jake? Yeah, that was the whole point. Yeah, yeah, that was the whole 100%. point. Tom Foreman, 100%. thanks so thanks so much. California has spent billions, billions of tax dollars on the effort to fight homelessness. So why is homelessness only getting worse in California? We're going to take a look next. International lead California is shelling out tens of billions of dollars in an effort to fight the problem and epidemic of homelessness, but. Is it actually helping those in need? CNN's Nick Watt crunches the numbers. $17.5 billion. That's what California spent fighting homelessness over the past four years. At the same time, the homeless population of the state grew by around a third. The problem would be so much worse absent these interventions. And that's not what people want to hear. I get it. We get it. Here's some reductive back-of-the-envelope math. With $17.5 billion in theory, the state could have just paid the rent for every unhoused person in all four years. 
It is reductive, and can I say why with respect? Perhaps that would work for me, because I don't have significant behavioral health challenges. My reductive math did leave maybe $3 billion for mental health and other services, but even if the state did just offer to pay the rent, there just aren't enough affordable houses to go around. Where are we supposed to go? I mean, this is what poverty looks like. Dr. Margot Kushel was just commissioned to find out who is homeless in California and why, in the hope her data might fine-tune the state's response. Her survey has busted some myths. Myth number one, most homeless people don't want a home. Not true. Participants overwhelmingly wanted permanent housing. Take Daniel and his disabled son who live on L.A. Skid Row. You would take it if they offered yes. you housing? Yes, I would. Yes, we would together, yes. I'm his father and we, and we need it. Myth number two, many homeless people here aren't from California. Therefore, the state owes them nothing. Nine out of ten people lost their stable housing here. These are Californians. We have to create the housing for all Californians. There is a state plan to build two and a half million more homes by 2030. A million among them must be affordable. But when it comes to housing, zoning is ultimately down to local government. We've got communities in this state that are refusing to build low-income housing because they say it's all just rapists and child molesters. So that's the dynamic that we're facing. Past two or three years, the state, they say, has built 13,500 affordable housing units. Baby steps. Christina Smith just moved into one after five years on the street. I thought it was fake. I'm sorry. Until they gave me the keys. And then I was like, this is real. You don't believe it after a while. Now to the why. Why do so many Californians become homeless? Even when we did have a job and we tried to look for housing out here, it was like impossible. Rent is too high because housing supply is too low. And many who fall into homelessness say it's really not by much. One of the surprising things was how optimistic people were that relatively small amounts of money would have prevented their homelessness. For a lot of them, that $300 to $500 a month would do the trick. But bigger picture, longer term? At the end of the day, if we want to truly solve homelessness in America, we need to build more housing. That starts with us. Now, they say this is a problem decades in the making, that politicians of every stripe are to blame, and that the fix will not be quick. But at least this current governor in California is now focusing on the issue, is spending money on the issue, is thinking differently about the issue. They're going to overhaul the entire mental health system in this state. They also say that for here in California and elsewhere, they need federal money to help. Jake? All right. Nick Watt in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Coming up, Ticketmaster says there's been a glitch, but can fans shake it off? More on the millions seeing sparks fly next. It's a cruel summer for more than one million music fans today after yet another issue with Ticketmaster. The site paused sales for all of Taylor Swift's upcoming tour stops in France, saying in part, quote, this morning's sale was disrupted by an issue with a third-party vendor who is working to resolve the issue as soon as possible. The debacle is nothing new for Ticketmaster. 
after running into major issues with ticket sales for Taylor Swift's American concert dates last fall. I have a brand new thriller out today. It's called All the Demons Are Here. It is a novel and a wild ride through a bizarre era for our nation. The 1970s. It features Evil Knievel and Elvis, post-Watergate mistrust of government, cults, disco, the summer of Sam, UFOs, the rise of tabloid journalism, and more. I'd be honored if you'd check it out. It's in bookstores, real and virtual, right now. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Twitter, Blue Sky. If you have an invite, the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead. CNN, our coverage continues now with one Mr. John King. He's in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.